You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. A warning, this episode contains strong language and references to violence, drugs, and suicide. It's early in the morning after a big snow in mid-December of 2016. Donald Trump was just elected a few weeks earlier. The whole country is in turmoil. Even for people who support his election, there's just this feeling of fear and distrust a feeling that's seeping down into the nooks and crannies of our country, even into places like my hometown of Walden, Colorado. One of my dad's best friends is a guy named Gabby Hayes. I've known Gabby almost my whole life. He's another one of the old gang that worked in the oil fields together in the 1970s. Well, Gabby is a Vietnam vet. He struggles with PTSD and with some serious addictions. And all this national turbulence, it doesn't sit well with him. One day, under the influence of a mix of pot and pharmaceuticals, Gabby finds himself at the post office with a rifle in his hands. I talked to him at the local cafe, and he's a little hard to understand. I was tripping. I was tripping. It was cold as a well digger's behind. Okay? And uh, I went in the post office to get warm, and I was tripping. There was a guy at the door trying to get in there and get that rifle, and I poked him in the face. Well, there was no face there, but there was a window. Gabby busts out the windows of the post office with the butt of a rifle and then runs into the street, confused and out of control. My mom, Carol, remembers it. Yeah, it was quite shocking, you know, for the whole town, everybody, you know. He went downtown, he broke out the window of the post office, which is federal. It, he went into River Rock. Somebody told me that he held a gun to their head. So he, he just went on a rampage downtown. After the post office, he goes next door and busts out the windows of the bank and then runs across the street to the cafe. This is from a transcript from the police report. The person who called stated that the person with the weapon shot out the windows of the front door of the cafe and had pointed the weapon at her from the front door. 
This person who had a weapon was in the hotel and was running around upstairs but couldn't get into the cafe now. Gabby throws a chair off the balcony, breaking the windows of a car below. Now, Gabby, our old family friend, is an armed and dangerous man on the loose. Yeah, Gabby's always sort of been, is, uh, you know, a threat to, to society. You know, he has done, um, you know, bad stuff. That's my dad, Jay. But not just any society. A small town, a struggling town with lots of struggling people. Maybe it looks like proof that the Wild West is still alive and kicking. A ghost town in the making. Gunfights on the streets and all that. But looking deeper, I start to see a different picture emerge. So far this season, we've been looking at the causes of dying towns. But it seems like it's time to take a look at the effects. Effects like the mental health troubles of those left behind. Because the rural West is seeing more and more deaths of despair. Suicide, alcoholism, drug abuse, lung cancer, diabetes. And especially by white men. Men like our family friend, Gabby. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Gabby Hayes never knew his real dad, but his stepdad, was a real piece of work. Red Hayes was a hateful son of a <laughs> Beat on mom a lot, beat on me a lot. Gabby wanted out of East Florida. So before he graduated, he'd already signed up to join the Army. As soon as I finished high school, I was on my way to Georgia. Here, kid, give me that guitar. Take this rifle. Get your butt in that truck. In Vietnam, he became a forward observer sniper, the toughest of the tough, and stuck it out for three tours. But he admits he's haunted by things that happened there. He doesn't talk about the war much, but he does tell me and my dad this one heartbreaking story. He remembers hiding out in the jungle when a young woman and a middle-aged man suddenly ran at him from up a hill. And they were carrying something suspicious in their arms. Gabby's reflexes kicked in. There ain't no son of a bitch gonna throw a goddamn bomb in my lap. Before I even knew it, I put him down. And the uh, bag that girl was carrying was full of black silks. And the one he was carrying, they had them leaves, tea leaves. They wrapped their food in it. And, uh, Well, they weren't running at us, they were running to us because they was running from the son of a bitch that we looking for. He'd killed both of these innocent civilians. And that impulse to reach for a gun before he thinks it was something he'd been trained to do. After the war was over, Gabby came back a wounded soul. But that's when he found Colorado's northernmost big valley, North Park. One of his first jobs was as a logger. Back then, they still used draft horses to move the logs. It reminded him of life in the Daniel Boone books he'd loved to read as a boy. It was early summer, a beautiful time of year. Those mountains where the 
the quakey trees first blossom out, and they're darker, the leaves are darker as the others come. But then there's that blue line. Somebody told me, oh, that's the timber line. But it was still ice cream topped, snowed. And I mean to tell you what, it, it looked just like they did in my childhood Daniel Boone dream, and you couldn't run me off with a stick. But it wasn't long before the trauma of his past began to catch up with him. When Gabby got a job in the late 70s working on the same oil rig as my dad, one of the first things my dad recalls about him was how he got into an ugly argument with a guy on another crew. One of our crew guys comes to me and says, we put Gabby's gun in your truck. And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) You know, so I've got this gun in my pickup truck so Gabby doesn't shoot somebody. But Gabby's love for North Park's mountains helped him feel better. In the early 80s, he decided to set up camp in the woods like a true mountain man. You were, you were getting into the mountain man stuff. Maybe once Jeremiah Johnson once too often. <laughs> that could have for me. Could have been. No, but I was hiding. You were hiding? Yeah, from well, what I don't know, I don't know. You gotta understand, honey lamb, I was a brand new civilian after 10 years of that, you know, army insanity. problem was, he didn't have a vehicle. So he hitchhiked to a nearby phone booth and called my mom. And he would call up and wanted cigarettes. You know, so then I'd have to drive out there. You know, and it's, you go past Kings Canyon and then back in the hills. And it it was in the wintertime in North Park. I mean, it gets 50 below in North Park. At one point, I probably just got sick of being out there. And his mental state <clears throat> deteriorated and he went down and the story was that uh, he went down and got the gun, got some guns, five is what I remember, in, the, in one of the cabins there. And so uh, Sheriff Swayze and, and Deputy Cure went up to apprehend him, you know. Basically he had stolen guns mm-hmm. and so as they were approaching his camp, he told me I could have dropped them both, but, but he didn't. But didn't. But he thought about it. And the cops didn't drop him. Especially back then, it was easier for a white guy to make it out of a situation like that alive. If he'd been black or Latino, it might have turned out differently. Afterward, my mom wanted to teach him a lesson. So we baked him some oatmeal raisin cookies, and she took me and my little brother, and we delivered them to his jail cell. Just to, so that he would be embarrassed because here's these little kids standing there seeing him behind the bars. Gabby has no memory of those cookies, but I do. It's a very vivid memory for me, seeing this guy I considered a kind of uncle, locked up. Other kids thought of prisoners as bad guys. Seeing him taught me a different kind of compassion. I knew Gabby wasn't bad. He was just broken. He'd served our country, and now he was hurting. And it's this brand of radical compassion that led my parents to open their doors to lots of people like Gabby 
about a decade later. By this time, it was the early 90s and I was in college, but came home in the summers to work in the hunting and fishing camp my parents had bought in the teeny tiny town of Cowdery at the north end of North Park. Cowdery was definitely ghost towny. They were debating whether to close its post office, and its school had been boarded up long ago. The Cowdery store is a historic building, the one and only business left in town. And out back is a string of cabins we rented out to hunters. A lot of the time, though, local people like Gabby lived in them. They were tiny, but each cabin had a kitchenette, a warm little heater, and a view of the medicine bows. Dan Hillhouse lived there, and uh, Jim Graham lived there. And there were other people. And then, and they would, uh, they would do work for us. Work to pay their rent. Few people paid in cash. One older couple, Doris and Russ, helped run the store for years. Dan was the resident fly tire, keeping the fly fishermen in woolly boogers. Jim Graham was an elderly cowboy struggling with emphysema from a lifetime of roll-your-owns. Now Jim is long dead. So is Russ, also from cigarettes. And Dan, the fly tire, became addicted to meth and went to the county jail for several years for possession of narcotics and guns. Unlike the others, though, Gabby always paid his rent in cash. He was getting a lot of money from the government, you know, because he got hit by that Agent Orange, yeah. So, and, he was, and he never did any work for us except, you know, coming in with a gun when I needed him to protect me. My parents ran those cabins during a time when North Park was declining fast. And that era offers a window into the despair that was taking a grip on the county. It wasn't just the Cowdery cabin renters that were suffering. Rural despair was on the rise across the rural West. Certainly one of the newest changes we've had is drugs. That's Lynette Telk, Walden's one and only doctor. We are definitely, you know, for years, never saw, or there was that little handful, of, that little group over there that you knew did it and didn't have to worry about it, you avoided it and it wasn't an issue. We are seeing drugs play a significant part in our, you know, they're, they're being seen by EMS and fire, they're being arrested. So we're seeing a lot of issues with that, which is hard because we don't have the facilities to handle that. And so that's been a challenge for all of us, um, sheriff's department, first responders, the clinic, everything. But it's not just drugs. Even more people die from alcohol, drunk driving, alcohol poisoning, liver failure. Coloradoans die from alcohol-related deaths at higher rates than almost any other state. And the highest suicide rates are in the American West, especially in its small towns. The problem is if we have one, it affects everybody in the community. And, and the numbers look bad because if you have one person per capita, you know, it really makes it look high. We definitely have the depression and the... The ranchers, the ones that aren't going to ask for help, the ones that just deal with it, and certainly the risk of suicide is much higher. Lynette understands this depression up close. She grew up on a ranch here. I remember when she was two grades behind me in school. Her family has been here generations. Growing up, we had a fantastic town doctor, Doc France. 
But after he retired, for years, the town only had a part-time nurse practitioner. Until, that is, Lynette came home. So this decline of her community into despair, Lynette feels it. She cares about her patients in a way few doctors are willing or maybe able to. You know, a lot of small rural areas are really struggling because people don't want to go back there. It's not easy. You're alone. Um, You may be on call all the time. You don't have a lot of extra support. And a lot of people don't want that responsibility or don't feel comfortable with that and knowing that, you know, they're responsible for everything. It's a heavy burden serving as a caregiver in a declining small town. Maybe that's one reason Walden doesn't have a full-time mental health clinic. I commute from Grand Lake, so it takes me an hour and 15 minutes to get there on, in good weather. So it's a 113-mile round trip for me. I chatted with Walden's part-time therapist, Tamara Gildenzoff, over the phone. Three days a week, Tamara drives up a curvy canyon and over Willow Creek Pass to see clients at Walden's Mind Springs Health Clinic. Man, that road gets bad in a snowstorm. She tells me why there's so many deaths of despair in small towns like this one. Why there's higher suicide rates in rural areas is because of the limited access to mental health services and then the high levels of substance use and greater availability of firearms is a huge issue, and reduced access to timely health care and emergency medical services, which again is a huge issue in areas that are isolated. It's just way easier to get your hands on a gun in a small town. Everyone hunts. Ranchers use guns to defend livestock. Guns are just always around. Because the more deadly the means for the attempt is, the less time you have to work with a client and help them, you know, think of other options. Tamara is doing what she can to help people in Walden. The VA is letting her see a couple veterans now. And she's going to start serving as a school counselor as well, since there's no one else to do that job. And she's been seeing more immigrants who need mental health services. But we have apps on our phones called Stratus, and we can actually get an interpreter to help us um, speak with people who are Spanish-speaking. So that's been very helpful. Um, I've actually used that on some crisis calls. It's sad to say, but that's maybe one way the pandemic has helped small towns. It's forced the healthcare system to work the bugs out of telehealth. Both Tamara and Lynette say they're relying on it more than ever before. But in North Park, telehealth has its limits. Some people are great with that. You know, the young ones, they talk on the computer and they FaceTime and do all that stuff. The older ones, it's a little bit harder for them. You know, they may not be able to turn on the computer or log on to the website. So, you know, certainly that issue can be a problem. And this county has more people over 90 per capita than any other in Colorado. Talking to people, they kept telling me about this inability to change, this downright resistance to change, and how it's all tangled up in the despair happening here. More on that when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Tina Maddox grew up in North Park and, like lots of us, moved away straight out of school. But when she came back, she noticed the community seemed more depressed. And even scarier, she says, people had started to calcify around the idea of this new reality. People had molded to and accepted who this had become. Mm Mm-hmm. And now it's almost like there's a mindset that to become something different is impossible and they're afraid to try. And I don't know if fear is the thing or what it is, but they don't want change and they don't want things to move forward. And I think that it's a community that's stuck right now. Tina recognized that the need was enormous and that few town leaders were willing to step up. So she did it herself. She started a nonprofit here called Restorative Resources Programming House. In most communities, they have social services agencies, but then they have nonprofits and private agencies that create that accountability and that working together that makes it work. We don't have that here. Or I guess we didn't until I started. And so we do a lot of things. I do um, drug and alcohol testing. I work on reentry programming. I work on family reunification programming. Whatever it takes, if you name it, I've got an entire list. How that works is I reach outside of the community. We are such a small community and so isolated, we have to learn to be friends with our bigger communities, you know, instead of seeing it as um, a threat or that we, you know, there's a lot of false pride that, oh, we don't need that. Well, we do for our communities to be healthy and thrive. But Mayor Jim Dustin says, It's not just resistance to change that's keeping North Park from solving a lot of its problems. He says the county is so small that the rest of the state just doesn't take this county seriously. We don't even have a a nurse in the county for the school. So we were contracting with Visiting Nurse Association, and they, they treated us like we weren't even there. Yeah, we had a child that was obviously being abused. The school complained to social services 19 times about this child. Cigarette burns on his arms. Mm. They, had to, they had to go to court to get the, 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 this child away from the parents. The sheriff finally intervened and went and took the children. <laughs> so, I mean, that's nothing peculiar to a small town, but uh, the lack of resources is. Jim Dustin says he feels like North Park and its problems just don't make it onto the state of Colorado's radar. And he has a sneaky feeling why. There are no votes in, in, in small counties. We have 800 registered voters. And we're lumped in with Boulder County for a state representative district that has 50,000 voters. I'm surprised that the, the gal ever comes out, which she does about once a year. The mayor says there's one list, though, that the state finally put Jackson County on, the one to get a new courthouse. It's this absolutely gorgeous stone building constructed in 1913. But he says it's not a good place to hold criminals. We had a guy escape from the jail. (laughs) 
He was he was kind of a funny guy. He he was an escape artist, and if he could drive a car, he'd probably be free today. But he doesn't know how to drive, so every time he escapes, he wrecks the car, steals a car, and wrecks it. Actually, you remember Robert Simons in episode two, our family friend who cut off his fingertip? A few years back, he actually came across this same guy, broken down on the side of the road. Not realizing that he was an escaped convict, Robert pulled over and helped the guy get the car running. He says the guy seemed like he was in a serious hurry. That's when the sheriff showed up. But they brought him back, and he showed the sheriff how to pick the lock. (laughs) He said, I was overjoyed when I saw those big old locks here because I knew I'd be out the next day. (laughs) So we're going to get a new courthouse. Recently, I visited the basement of that old courthouse. They've remodeled the place, so I couldn't quite figure out where the jail was or where we'd taken Gabby his cookies. I talked to Sheriff Poley. He's a young guy who grew up in a small town in Alabama. His wife is a nurse, and they have small children they plan to homeschool. For all these reasons, he says it's working out okay for his family to live here. But it's not an easy job by any means. His purview is the whole county. It's 1,628 square miles, so it it definitely takes some time. Yeah, and a lot of it is just like back roads, dirt roads, hard to get to. Yes, yes, we found, uh, depending on the call type, um, generally there's just one of us on at a time, and we've had response times up to three hours if we're in another part of the region on the state and the county here, uh, and a call comes out at the opposite end of the county. Based on dirt roads and weather, it may take two, three hours to get to them. Only one cop at a time, covering a county nearly 2,000 square miles. That's bigger than the state of Rhode Island. Sheriff Poley says he wishes the budget would allow him to hire a few more officers. I have just reached maximum capacity with the positions I have open, and I'll be requesting more with this next budget era. How many do you feel like you're, you're needing at this point? I would love to have four more, but I think two would probably be the best request at this point. And now, with winter coming on, he expects police work to get even harder. Because that's when depression hits hard in isolated mountain towns like Walden. I remember that feeling living here. It's like a sledgehammer coming down. Well, one of the things that you'll find with a small community like this is we don't have, like, movie theaters, things for people to get out and go do. So one of the biggest problems we've run into is when it gets cold for a long time, long term, People get bored, Um, and if they have medical conditions that don't cooperate with the weather, unfortunately some of those revert back to drinking alcohol or something of that sort that just something to do. Sheriff Poley says North Park's isolation has almost attracted drug trafficking. Smugglers use the highway as a backdoor route to get from I-80 to I-70. So we have a lot of people pass through and unfortunately leave narcotics as they go through and make distribution. So um, that seems to be one of our biggest challenges is trying to keep that under control. And those drugs lead to all kinds of crimes that really entrench the despair in the community. And then on the methamphetamine side is where we start seeing the 
actual criminal activity of burglaries, criminal mischiefs, damage. Used to be, people didn't lock their houses or cars in Walden. Now, even my parents do. A spate of burglaries in town on the homes of senior citizens really scared them, and it's made them less trusting of their neighbors. That trust, that's one of the hallmarks of the small town lifestyle. But now the country is torn apart with partisanship and misinformation. Without trust, that feeling of isolation, the one that eats at you in the wintertime, it isn't just geographic. It climbs in your head and lives there. There's signs of hope that Walden is hanging on to that community trust for dear life. Case in point, Gabby's Rampage on Main Street. My mom makes a really good point about how the former sheriff, Gary Cure, talked him down. Any other town, he would have been shot dead. But not, not in Walden, no. Gary just went and said, no, here, Gabby, you don't need to do this. <laughs> In the police report, Sheriff Cure describes de-escalating the scene. He and some of the other officers had gone into the hotel to find him. We then proceeded up the stairs to the top, where we could see down the hallway to the guest rooms. I saw Hayes standing in the hallway with something in his hand, but could not tell for sure what it was. I yelled, Gabby! And he turned and looked at me and then turned back toward the east and said something like, There's my sheriff, and he will take care of you. Hayes then turned around and came toward me. There's my sheriff, and he'll take care of you. That's what Gabby said to himself. He was relieved to see a cop that he recognized. Gabby is bipolar and takes lots of medications. But when those meds fail him, he cries out for help in the only way that he knows how. Nine different kinds of meds. Seven of them are for my physical well-being, and two of them are to keep me from looking over there too and see Mr. Hyde. There's no doubt that Gabby is alive today because he's a white man. My mom's sense is that he also is alive because he lives in a small town. Sheriff Cure was one of those officers that went out to his mountain man camp and arrested him decades ago when he stole five guns. He knows Gabby has been managing Gabby's mental breakdowns all his career, not something a veteran would have the benefit of in a big city. In the debates over how to fix policing in this country, one idea that's gaining traction is to bring back the neighborhood cop, someone who lives there, shops there, sends his kids to school there, someone who gets to know the community intimately. My mom says that's the kind of policing Gabby benefited from. But I'm not sure the neighborhood cop paradigm always holds up. In the small college town where I live, Laramie, Wyoming, a few years back, a Latino man with mental health issues was killed by a police officer. 
and it was a guy he actually went to high school with. In the hotel lobby, Sheriff Cure put handcuffs on Gabby and took him to jail. With two previous felonies on his record, Gabby wasn't supposed to go near guns. Another veteran might have been sent to prison for that. But instead, the community immediately called in the town's mental health therapist. Instead of prison, she recommended he go to the closest VA psych ward in the region. It's clear up in Sheridan, Wyoming, a five-and-a-half-hour drive away. Gabby was gone for a few months. But his return to Walden wasn't one of a criminal. But when you, when you came back, at least one of those times, from, yeah. from, and Stacy had, had fixed up your house and stuff. Oh, God, good thing ever. Oh, God, it, I what walked they, in there. They, they painted the whole interior, and they put stuff in there that I didn't have, and uh, they found a box of pictures and made one of them big old decolage hickey things. That's Stacy Golubeth that organized the remodeling of Gabby's house while he was gone. Stacy is the manager of the River Rock Cafe and Hotel, the place where Gabby shot through the door and barricaded himself. In fact, that's where we're now sitting, talking as Gabby drinks one glass of wine after another, even though it's morning. Stacy, uh, God, she literally adopted me. This is a fact. If it wasn't for Stacy Gollibut, I most likely would have went under some years ago because I wouldn't be able to keep track of all those medical appointments and stuff. And she did everything but grab me by the earlobe to make sure I got to every one of them. But it's not just Stacy that's watching out for Gabby. If you don't mind, I need to hit the post office. You want to walk up there? I'll do that. Uh, you give me that, and I'll take the dog, and I'll go around the block, and I'll pick you up in front of the post office. You're a damn good kid. Good I tag along kid. as my dad takes yeah. Gabby and his me big, blonde, labradoodle, curly rose around town to run errands. Gabby walks with a cane now, and it's hard for him to get around. I'm supposed to get something else, and I can't remember what it is. Hey, there's a dog in here. Yeah. That ain't no dog. That's my daughter. We do, Curly. Huh? Do you have cigarettes, Gabby? Yes, please. A couple of packs of those blue ones. Oh, if no. you ain't got the blue ones, okay, I'll give you the red ones. I don't give a hoot. I'd smoke a chain if I could lock some bitch. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. She's acting really strange for her. What are you doing? <laughs> come here. Yeah, come here. Hi, baby. After Gabby gets his cigarettes, we head to the liquor store so Gabby can stock up on wine. Then we take him to the post office and deliver him back home. Okay, we're good. Thank we're you. Good. Thank you. Have, have a, a good, good rest of your day. Yeah. Afterward, I ask my dad, why? Why does he go to so much trouble to help Gabby? I mean, why do you do that? Why do you help him when he, he could be dangerous? Huh. I don't know, because <laughs> he's my friend, you know. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. He may be dangerous, but, you know, if he's dangerous with me, it's better that he's dangerous with me where I might be able to, you know, neutralize him or deal with him in a, you know, even a, you know, 
you know, he's asked me before, do you think you can take me without a weapon? It's kind of a threat, but on the other hand, it's not really. So, but, you know, better me than going downtown and breaking out the windows in the bank. As small towns shrink, it's like trying to bail a sinking boat. Fewer and fewer resources available to help when things get rough. Tina Maddox, the community advocate, was right when she said that the town is stuck and is now almost proud of its self-sufficiency and has forgotten how to ask for outside help. But there's this one thing that small towns might be able to teach the rest of the country. How to not throw people away. He's just a good-hearted guy, you know, he wants the best for people. Yeah. But he doesn't always do the right thing, but he mostly does the right thing. And he tries to do the right thing, and when he doesn't do the right thing, it can be pretty bad. Lately, Gabby's been giving away all his prized possessions. Recently, he gave me a telescope, a really nice one. The military trained him in astronomy so that he could find his way navigating by the stars. I didn't understand why he would give it away, but my dad says Gabby's been talking a lot about dying. He says all his hard drinking and drugs, it's taken a toll on Gabby's body. But even after all his mistakes, Gabby will still leave a hole in this community when he goes. Walden's taken good care of you. That is the truth, that's the truth. We care about you. You know what? It's like, uh, I don't even know how to say such stuff, but it's part of a bond, and you know you're indebted to help the citizens in North Park. I can see my dad bracing for yet another one of his friend's deaths. The question is whether Gabby will make it through yet another one of North Park's long, hard winters. despair seems huge, like a problem that can only be managed, not solved. But remember that psych ward at the VA hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming, where Gabby went after his breakdown? Next time, we're visiting that place and finding out how they might be solving this problem. Being in their own home, they feel more comfortable about talking about certain things. If, if for example, there's something that is um, stressful to them, Maybe their pet is right there with them. Maybe there's something else that is comforting. How has rural despair hit home in your community? We invite you to share your stories with us on social media at Modern West Pod. Thanks to Peter Perlin and Ann Mason with Relative Theatrics and to Sheldon Williams for some of the music. And thanks to the Wyoming Arts Council for providing space and time to write this episode. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Aaron Jones. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Micah Schweitzer is the executive producer. 
Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.